Okay. I've really got to do some kind of uh, introductory video thing because it's just like I just appear and it's clearly uh, amateur. Come on, Fraser. Uh, we'll, we'll build something. I'll get Chad on this right away. Um, hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, today's episode of Open Space. Now, um, this is going to be one of the last uh, non-guest episodes for a little while, so I uh, thought we would uh, get going with this. So just a little bit of uh, housekeeping uh, before we get into uh, your questions, of course. Uh, first, so let's see. So we've got um, uh, our new episode all about the Solar Orbiter, which launched, <laughs> fortunately, on Sunday night. Uh, we did a whole episode, wrote it, shot it. So we were really counting on this spacecraft actually flying, and it did. It was perfect. So I don't. We didn't have to go back and change a thing. So that'll be tomorrow. Uh, we'll be releasing it to the uh, to the patrons later on uh, tonight, probably, and then everybody will see it tomorrow uh, at the usual time, noon on Tuesdays. The uh, um, and then on Friday we've got an episode on the weight calculation. So should you should a civilization uh, send a colonization ship settlement ship to another star system or should they wait for uh, better technology to come along? And it turns out that there is actually a mathematical function that you can follow to decide how long you should wait to the point that no amount of waiting is actually going to let you get there fastest. So it's depending on whether you want to get there the fastest or whether you want to get there the cheapest. Um, there's different, uh, different calculations on which way to go. So that's cool. And then next uh, Tuesday, we've got an episode on the different configurations that are currently in the running to figure out how to get to the moon as part of the Artemis uh, project. So one idea is you send three separate spacecraft on Falcon heavies, they get assembled at the deep space gateway, and then you go down to the surface and there's tons of reusable parts. Uh, another option is just like it's a one and done the whole stack flies to the gateway, the astronauts fly down to the moon, return to the gateway and come back to Earth. So um, we've got uh, those in the works right now. Uh, and that's as far as we have planned. And then for upcoming guests. So um, on Monday, the 24th, we've got Phil Metzger on um, and then I'm gone from the 27th to the 7th. So just prepare yourselves. I'm like I said, probably going to Japan with Logan, but it just depends on what happens with the, uh, with the coronavirus. Um, Monday the 9th, uh, we've got Rob Hoyt from Tethers Unlimited, which is a group that I think a lot of people have been wanting to talk with. Um, on Thursday the 12th, at a special time, I'm going to be uh, interviewing uh, Jim Al-Khalili, who uh, people in England probably recognize the name. He's sort of the, one of the main space documentary commentators there. So uh, he'll be joining me for a special time because he's in the UK. So we just need to modify things for him. Um, on uh, Monday the 16th, we've got uh, Susanna Kohler, who uh, does Astrobytes and works with Harvard and the American Astronomical Society meeting. Um, and then the week after that, so mid-March, uh, I've got Ryan Watkins, and she is um, a planetary scientist, works on lunar, um, works on sort of studying the surface composition of the moon. And so we'll be talking a lot about sort of the potential uh, material that could be harvested from the surface of the moon, what landers we're looking for, how hard is it going to be to extract water, things like that out of the regolith. So 
we will, uh, so there's going to be a lot of really fun and interesting interviews coming up. So, uh, you know, enjoy these, uh, just these one-on-ones uh, while you can. Uh, all right, uh, let's get into uh, this week's uh, live Q&A. Uh, right. Um, Larry Beckham, did Solar Probe break orbit for Venus? I don't know if it is on its way. So the Solar uh, Orbiter uh, spacecraft had launched last night. And of course, this is you know going to get the episode tomorrow. Um, but the uh, yeah, so it launched last night. Um, and will uh, I think the first flyby is going to be of Venus, but it's not till like 2022. And then it does like another flyby of Earth in like 2023. And then it's on a it's on a resonant orbit with Venus. And so every two years or so it comes back or year it comes back and does another orbit of Venus. And each time it cranks its orbit to a higher inclination each time. And by the end of its main mission, they're going to get to a point where they are at um, 23% uh, degree, 23 degree inclination to the sun's equator, and they'll be able to take pictures of the poles of the sun from a distance of less than the orbit of Mercury, 27 million kilometers. So um, it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> Eid Boz says, why do English people say Dutch names like Kuiper and Huygens in their own English way? Um, well, to the Dutch and a lot of the Northern Europeans have like just the most incredible English, right? And so you are steeped in, in saying our language in a way that we often can't even tell that you have an accent. It's incredible to talk to people from, from a lot of these countries. And it's just a, like a testimony to the fact that you're all taught English from a very young age um, to be able to speak other languages than your native, because there's not a lot of native Dutch speakers and a lot, not a lot of native Swedish speakers. And so to speak English is, you know, really smart. Um, so we just do, right? I mean, it's like we all, when you, whenever you encounter a word that you don't have a lot of experience, you don't have a lot of experience with the way the letters sound put together, you read the word the way you see it. And so for us, right, it would be, you know, Kuiper. Um, that's how we would say that in English because we don't have the same kinds of inflections on our letters. So there's just ways that you say things in Dutch that we just don't have. Um, and same thing, same thing with Huygens or maybe, yeah, Huygens is the way we would say it or Huygens. Um, so unfortunately, if we have a new word that we don't have, we don't have the specific like word sounds, it's just how we pronounce them. So sorry. <laughs> um, but then, uh, you know, we as Canadians, uh, we say words differently than Americans do. I get no end of grief for my Canadian accent. And so I think at the end of the day, like it doesn't matter, right? Like we're trying, we're all trying to say each other's words and we're all just trying to c communicate and get along. And, and there's like so many other things that are worth being concerned about than the way a person pronounces a word and languages change. And eventually hundreds of years from now, there will probably be like one language on earth and we will all speak that language with roughly the same accent and it'll all just work its way out in the end. So don't panic. Um, 
Dragon King asks about NASA needing 35 billion to reach the moon by 2024. Uh, I hadn't heard that article, so um, if you know where that was, probably like on Ars Technica or something like that, or Space News, that sounds about right. Um, you know, the budget of NASA is in the $20 billion range every year. So um, for them to, they're gonna have to either cut a lot of other stuff that they're already going to, um, things like, you know, just other parts of their, of their program to be able to afford that. Or they're gonna need to do cost savings, which is they're gonna have to do things like um, switch from the space launch system to the Falcon Heavy, which is part of this, this episode that I'm working on right now that, you know, you could actually get by with just one space launch system launch to do, to, to take an Orion capsule to the, to the deep space gateway. Or if you have more of them, then you can, you know, you can use multiple to make, to do less launches to do your missions. But I mean, this was sort of back when NASA was originally tasked last year to say, okay, you need to get to the moon by 2024. The White House administration says this, got NASA to confirm that they were going to do this, but with the understanding that there was going to be the money required to accelerate the whole program and the freedom to do what they needed to do. And those things haven't really come through. And partly it's just because no one branch of the U.S. government can make these unilateral decisions about how much budget gets spent on something like missions to the moon. So I, you know, everything had to go right, I think, for them to hit 2024, including the right amount of budget showing up at the right time. It, I, I've always said again and again, I would not be surprised if things slip. If the Deep Space Gateway takes an extra couple of years, any part of this that slips, the production of Orion, the Deep Space Gateway, the Space Launch System, right? Three separate, complete, the Lunar Lander, four completely separate um, structures, new pieces of technology that have never been worked out that have to be done. Think about what happened with Crew Dragon and Starliner. We saw multi-year delays with both of those and they have one job, right? Like what is the difference between Crew Dragon and Dragon? Instead of it carrying cargo, it carries people. And yet that took years longer to get working. So I would not be surprised if it's going to take longer and it's going to take more money because that's what that's what happens. All right. Um, hmm. The Oreg the Oregonism. Uh, Fraser, I'm in my mid thirties and about to finish my bachelor science in business management and my MBA shortly. Should I wait? Should I, would I be wasting my time trying to get into the space industry? Um, no, I don't think you'd be wasting your time. Like you want to take, you want to be a business person in the space industry as opposed to say an engineer. Um, no, I think there's going to absolutely be requirements. Now the big requirement is for engineers. Uh, there's a really interesting interview with Elon Musk and he was saying that, that the really the rate limiting factor for a lot of the companies that he runs is just a lack of talented engineers that you cannot scale up these companies, whether it's Tesla, whether it's SpaceX, Starlink, whatever, because you just don't have enough, um, that you don't have enough talented engineers. Um, and so this is, so if you want to be, if you really want to ensure yourself of getting a job, then you want to go the engineering route, but there's plenty of need in SpaceX and other companies for people who have their specialty in, in business. Although, you know, in general, it's good to have 
experience like as a product manager for say a software company or things like that. But so, uh, but there's lots of companies and I'm sure lots of them are going to require people with um, business experience. But if you really want to get a job, be an engineer. Um, <laughs> can you give a brief tour of that bookshelf? Um, yeah, I mean, it's mostly books that people send me. So um, generally what I do is um, I review like I get books sent to me all the time um, uh, and I review as many of them as I can and read them and we interview them here on the on the show and then I usually take donate them to the library when I'm sort of done with them so that they can have a second life as opposed to just being a prop in my on my studio um, so so I mean like Man, uh, Nancy's Eight Years to the Moon is back there. I've got the Mission to the Moon in 3D, the, the National Geographic Space Atlas, the World at Night. So there's lots of good, lots of good books, but I don't have time to read any of them. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, Kretza Loschke, you've said like the same thing, like in every episode, like a whole bunch of times. Um, as well as comments on a whole bunch of my videos and it doesn't, I'm not really sure what you're saying. So that's why I haven't, uh, responded to it. So, uh, I have no idea what, what that means. Uh, you can look through a telescope with your hands tied behind your back. I get it. You can, um, let's see. Arjun, do you do reviews on universe today? No, I don't, I don't do reviews and it's mostly because it just takes a lot of time, right? Like to do a book review, say a proper book review of a, um, you know, of a, of a book, you're looking at whatever, five hours to read the book, several hours to write a book review. Um, and then you publish it and nobody wants to read it. <laughs> like, like all the times we've done book reviews on universe today in the past, they don't really, nobody really wants to read the reviews. So I find that, that it just isn't a very productive use of our time in that medium. And so the, the, the thing that I like to do is I like to, um, to interview people for the various live shows and, and be able to give a chance to talk to them. And, and, and I will try to read the book before I interview the people, but sometimes I don't even have a chance to do that. So it's, it's rough. I, you know, if I had an infinite amount of time, uh, then I would, but, uh, I just don't. So, um, Trey Harmon, uh, Hey Fraser, what was the coolest thing that you learned at the American Astronomical Society meeting? Well, I think the coolest thing that I got to experience while I was at the AAS was getting a chance to meet the teams behind all of the new great observatories. So you've got like, um, uh, you know, you've got the Louvoir telescope, you've got the Origin Space Telescope, you've got Lynx, and you've got the uh, Habex. And it was great to be able to just sit down and literally for an hour, I spoke with each one of the, the project uh, people behind these super space telescopes. And it was incredible. 
um, to just sit down and just get all of my questions answered and just really wrap my head around them. And then we interviewed each one of them for while we were there. And so at some point, when I have time, when I can do this right, we're going to do fairly long, in-depth dives into each one of these mega telescopes. And so I'm... Uh, that alone for sure, because I just, you know, you never get a chance to, to get to go into this level of depth on these upcoming telescopes. You know how I like to operate, right? I'm like, I'm always so excited about what comes, what's coming next. And so this is like the big four things that are coming next. And so this is what I'm, this is, that was by far my, my favorite part of the whole, the whole trip. Um, Horizon Brave, thousands of years in the future, uh, when mankind has a mastery of space travel, do you think that Star Trek's prime directive will actually be needed? Um, that's interesting. I mean, so we sort of flip that, that on our own and we say, why aren't there any aliens? Maybe the aliens are keeping us some kind of galactic zoo and, and we're not ready to join the... Um, the space, uh, you know, the, the space federation. Um, but then when you sort of look at it from the, uh, from the other side, you say, well, but yeah, but like every single alien, wouldn't there just be a captain Kirk or, a uh, Jean-Luc Picard who'd be willing to break the prime directive for his own purposes. Um, and that would be, uh, you know, it feels like you can't stop the, what, 10 trillion individuals want to do. And so I think a prime directive would be a good idea. And there, there would definitely, you'd want to have some kind of policy that, that you would have to actually be, you know, interacting with various alien species. But at the same time, I don't think you could go with a no interaction at all. Um, that ideally they would choose um, what kind of interaction they can have with us. Um, but at the same time, I, I just can't imagine like the, the, the universe would be teeming with civilization and I just can't imagine them not, um, wanting to interact. So I think it's just sort of like once it's same thing with earth. I mean, there's like the people on Sentinel Island who've been able to minimize their interaction with anyone else on planet earth. But apart from that, um, uh, we're all part of the human civilization and we all want to take advantage of all of the new developments in dentistry and medical science and, and computers and the internet and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so you would imagine the same thing would happen. Like if we learned that there was a galactic federation, would we want to just putter about here on our own planet or would we want to join the federation and get access to all of the cool stuff? And so I just don't think that, and it's possible even right. Like, like, on the one hand, you want to allow a civilization to develop on its own. And on the other hand, what if, you know, what if they're going to have a great war and they're going to kill each other? Do you want to let them develop this on their own? Or do you want to go, hey, by the way, here's a way that you can avoid having to have wars because, you know, you don't need oil anymore. You can just have solar power. So um, I think that that it is, um, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like, like a prime directive makes sense. But we definitely don't want to be bad to alien civilizations as well. We don't want to ruin them, which is sort of the way that human civilizations have worked in the past is to really take advantage of, of any new civilization. So, um,
<laughs> um, the first, oh, actually, I got a question from you. Building with Todd, is there a limit to the size of Rocky Planet? Could a Jupiter-sized Rocky Planet exist? Yeah, there's no real limit to the size of a planet. I mean, it's more like what is the amount of natural um, material that you're going to end up with in a solar system. But you could definitely have something that's a lot bigger than the Earth. Uh, it might just be that there's not enough to collect together a Jupiter-sized planet. But if you had a Jupiter amount of Jupiter-sized amount of rock and dirt, and you just put it all in the same area, it would all pull together into a ball, and that would work, and it would have just incredibly crushing gravity. You can't even imagine what it would be like on the surface of it, but it would work. Um, Warren Nottestein, uh, information panspermia, plausible if we find an advanced alien partner. So when you talk about information panspermia, you're just talking about this idea of us communicating through uh, like pen pal, alien pen pals. Um, I think that's a uh, definitely a plausible idea, right? That you would you would find some alien civilization that maybe they're 30 light years away, 40 light years away, and you would they would be sending out some kind of signal and you would receive the signal and you would try to understand it. And then you would try to send signals back to them. And you would probably, as long as you could, you could suss out that you weren't trying to invade each other's uh, civilizations, you would want to send information back. I highly recommend you read the three body problem series, three books, because they are absolutely covering this idea which is just should people try to send out communications into space um, and to, you know, if they learn of alien civilizations, does it make sense? Is it wise? Is it safe? Um, and what are the downsides? And the whole series is all about that. So if you haven't already read them, I highly recommend that you read them. Um, Charles Miller asking about ultraviolet habitable zones because there are new papers even this year that says that most stars will not have a congruent liquid water and ultraviolet habitable zone. I have not heard of the term um, ultraviolet habitable zone. In fact, sort of in our experience, life here on Earth is is the reverse, right? That that ultraviolet radiation is one of those things that kills any life. And you get enough of the bad kind of ultraviolet radiation, it's lethal. And it's a way that you get rid of bacteria from a surface. So um, I'm not sure that uh, that you would want to live, that there would be. Or are you saying that, that, like, that you can't, like it's bad, ultraviolet, like not habitable zone? Anyway, please help me understand what you're talking about. Um... Someone's asking about bands. So same thing. Warbash is asking about favorite bands. Uh, who and Green Day fan, but always looking for something new. I don't listen to a lot of music anymore. I mostly listen to podcasts. And um, if I have time to listen. Uh, so unfortunately, I don't listen to much music. But my, you know, my kids do. Um, so put bands in that you like. Um, let's see. Neil, you, Fraser, do you think we could solve global warming without fusion power plants? Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, you could you could create a pretty well-run electrical economy with solar power and hydroelectric dams and wind power and interesting physical methods of of energy storage. I saw this great thing. It was like a crane and it built this cylinder. And so when it needed to store energy, it built this cylinder around itself really tight and really high. And then it would pull these blocks out and slowly reel them down to the earth and then build this sort of big circle around it when it was to, to use up all that energy. And then when it had more excess energy, it would build up this tower again and it would be totally reusable. So I do love the idea of, um, of, of just a, the completely renewable economy. I think that would be amazing. And, and I think it's a thing that should be like, like that's living in the future, right? Uh, I own an electric car. I own a Nissan Leaf and it's the best thing ever. I love it so much. Um, I can't even imagine what it would be like to drive a Tesla, but just like my Leaf, I plug it into the house and then I just drive around. Um, yeah. And in fact, you know, on our next place, the plan is for sure to have a completely self-contained house that is completely off grid Starlink connection to get the internet. Um, I can't wait. So yeah, I think we should do it. Then we should, we should, and if fusion shows up to help out, then we should totally do that too. Um, <laughs> people are saying there was a glitch. So I apologize if so. Um, Josh M could life on a red dwarf planet absorb high radiation and convert it to energy. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we don't know any way that you can convert higher amounts of radiation to energy, ultraviolet radiation, X-rays, gamma rays, things like that into life, right? We know that it's harmful to life. It's only once you get above the, like if you go above the visible spectrum. Um, and so one of the problems with even with red, with red dwarf planets around red dwarf stars is the kind of light that they're getting the kind of photons are more on the red end of the spectrum. And it's actually a fraction of the light. So even if they're in the habitable zone zone, and they're warm, it's a fraction of the kind of, of of the visible light. And so just the amount of like, say for photosynthesis, just the total energy budget of the planet. So in fact, this is going to be a big problem. If we do find planets in the habitable zone of their, of their red dwarf stars, it might be that they don't have enough energy to be able to carry on photosynthesis. And you know, you're gonna have microbial life. that's just eking a sad life on the pale red glow of the of the star, but not actually have a really healthy and vibrant ecosystem like like we would have around a, a, a more main sequence star like like the sun. Um, Captain frantic, any thoughts on plans to build a space elevator on the moon? Um, that reaches most of the way to the earth. No, the, the, I mean, there, there are no plans to build space elevators, right? Like we're just talking about right now, maybe getting humans to set foot back on the moon again in 2024. And that's probably not going to happen. And it's going to push back. And, you know, maybe in the 20, you know, 28, it'll happen when, where someone will like set foot on the moon. And then maybe in the 2030s, we'll have a more permanent, uh, research base on the moon. And maybe in the 2050s, we'll be up. Antarctica kind of base on the moon. 
So we're a long ways away from this idea. Um, but the the moon is makes a ton of sense as a place to build a space elevator. So if you need to get your stuff up and down from the moon, a space elevator there is great. I mean, you can use technology that we have here on Earth, like spectra and various kinds of composite fabrics to, you know, as your elevator cable, uh, there's lots of solar power available for you to raise the thing, the force of gravity on the moon is lower, uh, you would raise up to the Earth moon L1 Lagrange point, right L1. Um, that's where you would go. And I don't know the distance, but it's not most of the way to the earth. It's actually a few tens of thousands of kilometers above the surface of the moon. So it'd be a fairly short jump up. And then from there you would transfer to some other orbit. F zero. Why was there no second Genesis on Mars, even though it had liquid water? We don't know if there was never a second Genesis on Mars yet, right? Um, we don't even know if there was other Genesis events here on Earth, like abiogenesis, where where you went from non life to life. We don't know how it happened in the first place. And we don't know uh, what it takes. And we just haven't done enough searching of Mars to really find out any evidence. I mean, obviously, there's no giant dinosaurs roaming around, you know, big creatures, no trees, forests, things like that. But, um, but what could be, um, you know, what could still be there in the briny uh, underground lagoons that are uh, that are on the on the surface of Mars. So we still don't know. Um, could be that there's no life on Mars. Could be that there is life on Mars, but it's related to Earth through some panspermia event. Uh, it could be that there's life on Mars and it's completely separate from Earth life. So we still need to find out. Tony Principe. Uh, hey, Fraser, if SpaceX starts crew dragon missions to the ISS, do you think the US, US and other countries will stop using the Russian Soyuz program completely? Um, yeah, I think so. I don't see any reason why the United States would use the Russian Soyuz if they could launch astronauts to and from the International Space Station on on their own vehicles, right on the Crew Dragon or on the Starliner? Why would they fly all the way to Russia train with the Ru I mean, they're still gonna want to train with the Russians, they'll still fly over to Russia and visit Star City because they work in partnership with the Russians. But I think they would they would then take um, American to and from the International Space Station. I can imagine if there was like some kind of lurch or some kind of problem, then they would, um, uh, you know, then they would have a, a reason to use a, the backup and the more options is always great. And, and the Soyuz is proven to be a really dependable spacecraft. But, but I think, you know, sometimes a country needs to be able to send its own people to space. I think that's 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 the underlying goal here is to just for the United States to have the capability to send their astronauts to space to their space station, right? It's got to be infuriating to have this space station that you've built and no way to be able to get people to and from it. So I would I know I would be um, it would be a huge priority for me. Beth Johnson, how do you refute someone who says that a, a biogenesis is not possible? How do they know? I mean, they, they're telling you that something is not possible, then they have to prove that a thing is not possible. And yet we have life had to come from somewhere. So, uh, you know, what's their ex explanation for how we have life and not no life? 
And if their answer is magic, then that's not an answer. So I feel like it's pretty easy. Um, Josh Holland, do you think that the Russians will fly on Dragon because of cost? Uh, well, see, that's that's the same question, right? Which is that um, why would the you know the Russians are going to want to be able to fly their astronauts, their cosmonauts to and from the International Space Station? So why would they not want to do that? Um, yeah, I can't imagine like I think any country that's gonna have the capability to be able to send humans to space, it's sort of like a national pride thing. It's not about money, you know, in Canada, we're perfectly happy to uh, pay our way to send Chris Hadfield to, you know, on whatever spacecraft will take him to space. But for I can understand for the Russians, the Americans, the Chinese, they're gonna want to use their own home built spacecraft to take their people to space. Um, Arjone, will the colonization of the moon or Mars require any cooking, especially if they want stuff to be self-sustaining? Um, why? Well, I mean, you don't need to cook food now if you don't want to. I mean, cooking is is good for making food softer and easier to eat, easier to digest, better tasting. But you can eat raw food. Um, lots of hikers um, will take. You know, they'll, they don't cook There's a lot of hikers that, that do these multi-day journeys and they do this no cook method where they just throw oatmeal and all kinds of stuff into a jar, let it soak for a few hours and then they eat it and it works just fine. So I think, you know, cooking is as with hiking, when you cook, it just, it makes life better to cook on the trail. And I think for the people on the moon and Mars, they're going to appreciate having nice hot meals. So I'm sure they will. Um, building with Todd. Hey, Fraser, do you know when or if Bigelow Aerospace will put one of their inflatable space stations in orbit or beyond? Well, they actually have, right? There is a Bigelow Aerospace module on the International Space Station right now that was done as a test of just knowing whether or not this technology was going to work, and it worked great, and NASA has extended the contract. I don't know of any concrete plans to do any other Bigelow Aerospace missions. Um, there was one idea that they were going to potentially partner up with, I think, Northrop Grumman to, to send their big one. They have like a tw the, the 2200 cubic meter space station that they were going to send into a moon orbit and build a space hotel. Uh, but what, you know, it hasn't happened yet. But I think big, you know, to Bigelow's credit, uh, he has he and his company has just really stood the test of time in proving a concept that to work and be functional in space and not go out of business while doing so, which is the fate that a lot of uh, companies go through. So I hope that we can see more of those inflatable habitats. It makes a ton of sense to, to, to have a fairly compact habitat, fly to space, inflate the thing. Now you've got a huge space that astronauts can live in. So um, I would love to see more of it in the future. Apologize. Um, peaks and pokes. Will Europe ever have the capability to send people to space? 
Um, so right now, Europe has no ability to send people to space. They worked on a space plane back in the 1980s. We actually did an episode where we talked about some missions that had gotten canceled and sort of my the ones that I thought that were the best. And this was one of them was this European space plane. It kind of looked like a mini space shuttle. And because spaceflight is complicated, hard and dangerous, and they have their partnerships with the, with NASA and Russia, they backed away from actually trying to develop that. But they of course have the Ariane space rocket. So I think that falls into that same requirement, right? Which is that a, sometimes a company, a country needs to have the ability to send its own, at least cargo to space. And in this case, Ariane space has a pretty successful rocket system to be able to do that. Although we'll see what happens when, when we enter the realm of reusable space flight, like, will there be a, um, you know, will they fully embrace as quickly the reusable rocket age in the way that that SpaceX and Blue Origin and even the Chinese are about to? And that's going to be the real question. Like, does it still make sense to fly your own rockets when they cost 10 times as much as a SpaceX launch on a Starship or 100 times as much? So... Dali Maguira, what differentiates the solar orbiter from the Parker Solar Probe? That's a great question. Um, so the, the Parker Solar Probe is going to get a lot closer. This is the NASA mission. It's going to get a lot closer. It's going to get within 9 million kilometers of the sun, which is only like seven solar radii away from the surface of the sun. So it's going to get really close and be on this big, long elliptical orbit where it dives in and then flies back out and then dives back in and it's actually equipped with pretty terrible cameras so it's not going to be taking like really beautiful pictures up close in the way that we saw with say these these new pictures from the um the daniel kane telescope but um but it's going to be flying really just as close as humanity can send a spacecraft and be taking readings that close to the um to the sun, while the solar orbiter is going to fly on a sort of a close orbit, it's going to be within the orbit of Mercury, but it's going to be doing this polar orbit. So it's going to be or it's going to try and move towards a polar orbit, increasing its its inclination to the plane of the ecliptic. And it is equipped with fairly nice camera systems. So it's going to be able to take those really nice pictures of pretty much every part of the sun as it does its as it does its orbits. So uh, it's just like one is designed to get really close and take brute force measurements of the sun and the solar wind you know, from really close while the other one is going to stand back a little farther and do it. But both of them are still going to be closer than than really any spacecraft that we've ever sent to the sun. So it's all pretty exciting. Um, Chimpy 726, isn't the sky, you're talking about the Skylon space plane still a thing in the UK? I thought they were working on it. Yeah, the European Space Agency is definitely working on parts of the Skylon. And this is this idea of a single stage to orbit plane that takes off from runway, um, uses a traditional, you know, uses its rocket fuel as jet fuel, breathes in air. And then when it gets to the right altitude, the, it kicks over into a rocket engine and it carries it to space and releases its cargo and comes back to Earth. And they're working on the engines right now, which is sort of like one of the biggest, craziest technologies of this. And it's a great, I mean, it's a great idea. Uh, I think there's a, there are a lot of downsides to single stage to orbit vehicles. They just, even if you have the most efficient vehicle ever using chemical uh, propellant, 
you just can't carry a lot of cargo to, to space. And so the advantage is everything's fully reusable and you can fly the thing in again and again. The disadvantage is you have to fly it a lot to match anything like what, say, the two-stage reusable Starship is going to be. So um, it's an engine. Like right now, the Skylon really is is research into an engine that is air breathing at low altitudes and turns into a rocket at high altitudes. That's the work that's been done. But the European Space Agency has kicked in um, money and and time to continue on the development and research of this, you know, pretty interesting uh, technology. So who knows where it will end up in the end. But I think that if SpaceX cracks this with Starship and they've got the plan of a two-stage fully reusable rocket capable of carrying, you know, with a nine-meter fairing capable of carrying ludicrous amounts of cargo flying multiple times a day. There is no other plan that holds a candle, pardon the pun, to what SpaceX is going to be doing. So, I mean, right now, the hope for all these alternative rocket systems is that SpaceX can't figure it out. And that Starship won't work. But if it does work, if they do figure it out, and it works the way Musk is planning, then there's really no reason to fly anything else uh, until, and, and uh, you know, that, that it will be versions of that, right? And it's sort of like, like we all fly in commercial airlines, and they all kind of look the same, right? Because that has been figured out. Um, and so it'll be a similar sort of mechanism moving forward. It's different iterations and versions and, and on that overall configuration. Um, geek in Utopia. Could we use balloons to haul spacecraft into the upper stratosphere, lower mesosphere, and launch from up there? Yeah, there, so the, the, the name for this is called Raccoons. Um, and so it's like half, you know, it's a balloon launched rocket. And this has definitely been considered. Um, the advantage of a balloon launched rocket is it carries you up above the thickest part of the atmosphere so that you just, you can then launch your rocket without having all this atmospheric drag, but you still have to go sideways 28,000 kilometers per hour. And that's what orbit is, is flying sideways fast. And so, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, when you think about all the moving parts, right, you, you have this great big balloon, and you have a rocket that's dangling off the bottom of the balloon, and then the balloon has to take off, and it flies up to its altitude, and then it has to drop the rocket, and the rocket has, while it's falling, has to ignite its thrusters, and then has to, to fly into space from this platform. And then you just compare how the Starship is going to work. It's just going to be just a brute force, simple, inexpensive, carrying stuff to space. So, so again, right, like all of these other ideas that are being considered, it's going to be really hard to compete against a two stage, fully reusable rocket. Um, and if I was say blue origin, and, and, and if they've done the math, I would try to figure it out to try and match what they have what they have planned, because it feels like it's the most elegant. Um, and then and most elegant solution. And then of course, if it and then they're going to make it bigger, right? The plan is to take it from a nine meter fairing to an 18 meter fairing, maybe. What does that look like? Right? Um, so the future is going to be crazy. Um, 
Elshar666, uh, doesn't the great filter presume that intelligent species don't have a self-preservation instinct and spread at all costs? What if they don't even think about sending beyond the certain parameter? Yeah, it could very well be that there are alien species that have no interest in leaving their local star system and exploring the rest of the universe. And that's fine, right? I'll bet you there's, you know, if you have a sandwich and you put mold on the sandwich, a whole bunch of different kinds of mold, there's gonna be a couple of molds that don't want to spread and don't want to spread their spores and don't want to take over the entire sandwich. And that's fine. The rest of the molds will take that opportunity and do it for them. So you will absolutely, in theory, have intelligent civilizations who are be like, we just want to, we're just homebodies. We don't, we don't see the point of going to other star systems. We don't want to, but it doesn't matter because for every one of those, as long as for, in, in fact, if there's a thousand of stay at home aliens, as long as you get one that is like, we're going to go everywhere, then the entire galaxy gets colonized. And so that's why a lot of these arguments would be like, but what if they don't want to X, right? What if they get stuck in virtual reality? What if they, um, uh, what if they turn inward and, and achieve a higher state of, of metaphysical transcendence? Like fine. Yeah. What if, right? But all it takes is one, just one alien civilization to make a self-replicating robot probe that it goes to every single star system and dismantles all of the planets and turns them into Dyson spheres. Just takes one. And that's the key is that you have to say, is that something that they'll all do? And it was back to that conversation that we had at the beginning of the, um, of the big beginning of this of this episode where we talked about this idea of of this galactic zoo like it's really hard to believe that if you're in this galactic federation with 200 billion stars and a trillion inhabitants on every single one of those worlds that not just one of them has got it in their mind that they're going to jump the gate and and let the zoo inhabitants know that they're living in a zoo like it just seems preposterous that that you wouldn't have that at, a, at that kind of a scale. So, um, Arjona saying, isn't that how you would leave the Venus sky city? Yeah. So if you, this is back to that idea of the rocket, the raccoon. Um, yeah, if you were living on Venus and you wanted to escape for the, your sky city, it's actually really hard. You've got to fire this rocket from your balloon that will then be able to give you an orbital velocity to be able to escape the planet. And if it doesn't work, then you're doomed right? Then you crash and you're dead. There's no, um, uh, there's no abort to orbit once you fire your rocket and head home. So anyone living on Venus is going to have a pretty sketchy, uh, return voyage because you're still in a gigantic gravity well, which, you know, gravity wells are for suckers. <clears throat> um, Josh M. Do you think that hypersonic space planes can ever replace traditional planes? It, it all just depends on the fuel use, the cost um, per ticket, right? Um, I mean, there's all these other issues with hypersonic planes. We saw with the Concorde and stuff, enormous sound. Um, but the big one is just they use a tremendous amount of fuel. And so uh, are you willing to buy a ticket to go? Like for a lot of us, air travel is already plenty fast right? That I can get on an airplane and eight hours later be in Europe is mind bending. And for the folks on the East coast of Canada, they can do it in five hours, right? Um, and so really the difference between eight hours and four hours is 
not worth five times the price and and increased fuel use and carbon dioxide emissions, et cetera, et cetera. So no, I think I think if anything, you know, people are going to try and figure out other ways like bad, you know, electric airplanes that fly a little bit slower, but they're able to do it fully rechargeable uh, when they land at their destination. So I think that that we're going to see a lot of innovation in in the electrification of of airlines in the coming decades, not faster. We saw faster. People tried faster and it didn't work that well. And maybe we'll have better technology, but in the end, it's not going to work. Um, you know, who knows? But um, let's see. McPhaser, do you think of a single nuclear bomb explosion echo propulsion? Like, can you use a bomb like, like the Orion? the idea of the Orion where you drop nuclear bombs and then use that to propulse your spacecraft. Yeah, in theory, but like just the scale of spacecraft to be able to do that to drop nuclear bombs and absorb the the impact how like how many bombs you have to carry on board to be able to accelerate your spacecraft. It's a it's a pretty, uh, pretty intense idea. But I you know, I like I like, I'll, like all of us, right? I love the idea of these big projects, right? The Sea Dragon, the Orion, right? O'Neill cylinders, Dyson spheres, right? When the reality, of course, is like, can we just get a person to step on the moon and not die? That's where we're at right now. But be great. Um, Captic Frantic. Assuming missions to space increase in number, how much of an effect will this have environmentally due to emissions? And is there any work ongoing to develop emission-free launch technology? So the the short answer is no. Um, you know, only chemical rockets can provide enough energy to be able to take a payload to space. And when you look at a, you know, when you look at the Starship, it's just a gigantic stack of chemical fuel of methane that's going to be ignited to carry the thing to space. Uh, but one of the great things about methane is that you can produce it directly out of the atmosphere. So you can use a renewable energy source, say you have a big hydroelectric dam, and then you are creating electricity that then pulls carbon dioxide out of the air, and you turn that into methane, liquid methane that you can then turn into your rocket fuel. So you can't do that with kerosene. And liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen, you can pull out of water, right? You just split them electrically, and then you've got your two fuels. So there are types of rocket fuel that could be made and have them be carbon neutral. But I don't think we'll see that for a while. But at the same time, the amount of rocket fuel that gets used compared to other kinds of emissions is today a fraction. Shipping, um, trains cars, air travel, concrete, things like that, right? And so it makes sense to get rid of and reduce the things that are the biggest. Um, Zouchin uh, Hay is saying, hey, Fraser, great content. As always, love a video on even more out there telescope proposals, in particular the idea of using solar uh, gravitational lens and orbital rainbows. Yeah, I did, I did an episode on what comes after the telescopes that come after James Webb. 
And so, you know, what are some ideas for proposals of telescopes? And I'll, I'm sure I'll do like a part two and a part three, just whenever I see some of these really great ideas, I'll gather them all up together into one, um, uh, just like one episode and give more extreme telescope ideas. So just whenever I see the papers, like I do, like I'm, I'm constantly looking at all the new papers that are coming out every day. And so whenever I see some of these cool ideas, I'm, I'm setting them aside. And then at some point I will take a crack and, and share them all. So, so stay tuned. Um, you're welcome, Captain Frantic. Uh, first organism, any opinion on the simulation hypothesis or the many worlds theory? Well, those are two separate things. Um, but the reality is that they both have the same answer, which is they are interesting, but we have no way to know for sure what they are. Uh, if they're, there's no way to sort of definitively scientifically prove that we are or are not living in a simulation that we are or are not living in multiple uh, in a multiverse. And so the problem is, is that it's you know, if it's practically impossible to tell the difference, it, it just becomes an issue of philosophy, right? Um, similar to, you know, the existence of God, right? If you can't prove it, then it's a philosophical thing. And so I think that that with all of these issues, like until you have some test that you can make that um, and in, with the simulation hypothesis, right, of course, every day that goes by that we make better and better simulations, we have more and more evidence that that there will be more sophisticated simulations, and then it starts to make more sense. Um, and and as well as things like, you know, if we do do discover we get concrete evidence of inflation, then that pre that almost requires separate universes through endless inflation. And so, so, and even if the universe itself is infinite, then you have essentially infinite universes within or infinite finite spaces within an infinite universe. You know, there are an infinite number of Frasers giving this exact same YouTube video on an infinite number of worlds out there. Um, but we can just never reach them. So practically, they don't exist, which, but it's not but but I love to think about it. And I think that's the key, right? Is that, um, is that there's nothing wrong with thinking about these ideas and mulling them over and and having these conversations. There's, it's fun. And I always find that when people give us a hard time for thinking for dreaming, for thinking um, about what the future might be, um, who cares what they think, right? They're just they're downers. They, uh, they have no imagination. And who who are they to say that we can't think about these cool ideas? Um, Ab Kalsi, do you think the coronavirus fears will disrupt the Star Trek crews next month? I hope not. I hope the coronavirus fears don't stop my flight to Tokyo in three weeks, two weeks, two and a half weeks. Um, I, I, you know. This is like on the one hand, like we're still getting a sense of how scared we should be about this pandemic. Is it uh, so dangerous that eventually we're all going to catch it and then it's going to cull some percentage of our population? That's horrifying. Um, and, or is it going to be, you know, we freaked out unnecessarily and in fact overreacted to a perceived danger and in the end it wasn't really, didn't have to really be that panicked about it. We don't know. 
it's still unfolding. Uh, from what I've seen, you know, it's not, you know, it's sort of, it's not as lethal as say SARS, but it is definitely kind of in the flu influenza range. It uh, does seem to spread quite a bit. I hope that, but at the same time, people are, countries are reacting quite well to try to sort of minimize the spread and, and, and identify it. And a lot of nations have, have fairly advanced medical facilities. I worry about some of the nations that don't though. Um, you know, the coronavirus gets in there and, and spreads like wildfire. People are going to, you know, a lot of people are going to, are going to die. So anyway, it's a, it's a weird time. And this is a risk that we've always been prepared for, right? That we knew about. And now we are, when we think about these ideas of these existential threats and people say, oh, they can never happen, right? Well, one could be happening right now. And this is what it feels like, right? This is what it feels like to, to know that something is possible, like climate change, like an asteroid impact, like dangers of unfettered artificial intelligence, and to watch this unfold and play out. Um, hopefully we will avoid this one and we will get it under control and it won't have that bad of a death toll and we will learn a ton of lessons, but we watch and see what happens in the future. And each time, you know, there are people who are concerned about the future and they try to get other people to take precautions and, and they don't, and then we see the consequences. So, um, Oh, special katana coronavirus is not equal to space talk yawn. Well, I think, you know, it's connected to this idea of, of existential threats that as we become a spacefaring civilization, as we, because we reach out into space, as we think about what we are capable of accomplishing as, as all of humanity, we also bring threats with us. And I think that we will face these challenges as we move on into the solar system. M AXA M. I don't understand the possibility of infinite universes when we know that it is not infinitely old. Um, so you're talking about this idea. So, so the, this idea of, of essentially the universe itself being infinite. So even though the, the universe um, was dense in the past, it is, it could have been infinite at the time of the Big Bang. So, you know, imagine a grid that goes on in three dimensions forever. And the square, the cubes on that grid are very close together, but it's, it's infinite. And that is before the Big Bang. And then the over time, right, the size of those cubes expands, and it's still infinite. And so it was infinite at the beginning and it's infinite. Now it's just less dense today than it was at the time of the big bang. And so it's not like the universe was this little explosion and then it expanded to our current size. All the, what we see as the observable universe is just one little piece of potentially an infinite universe. F zero, what is your favorite Fermi paradox solution? I think that we are alone in the universe. That is the, that is my response to the Fermi paradox is that I think we're alone, that, that I can't think of a reason why there would be aliens everywhere and we would see no evidence. So, 
Uh, all right, we've reached the end of our hour. Uh, apologies to everybody whose uh, questions I didn't get a chance to get to. Um, these this hour just goes so quickly. Um, so uh, thanks everyone for uh, for joining me. Thanks to the patrons for helping to keep the show e existing. Uh, thanks to all the moderators who were copying all the questions for me to be able to see them. And uh, thanks to the donation. Uh, that was great. I really appreciate it. All right. So like I said, tomorrow, new episode on Solar Orbiter and then an episode on Friday all about the weight calculation. So we will see you all uh, tomorrow.